Deuteronomy chapter 21, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for the instructions that you give us. And uh, Lord, how we can grow in the grace and knowledge of your word, how our minds can be transformed, uh, Lord, through just sitting under the word. And so we just pray that you would speak to us, bless this time that we have together. And I pray, Father, as um, everyone has an opportunity, a chance to share, Lord, that uh, you would just speak through them as well. So... Bless our time as we offer it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Deuteronomy chapter 21. Moses is about to go home to be with God. But before that, he is going to share with the nation of Israel rules and guidelines, laws for them to be able to know how to conduct themselves when they go into the promised land. So our first uh, little section that we're going to break down is verses 1 through 9. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, If anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer, which has not been worked and which has not pulled with and which has not pulled with a yoke, the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled." And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And so basically, if somebody was killed and they were left in a field, instead of having that person just, ah, bummer, somebody's dead, God is saying, no, a sin has been committed and something needs to be done for that sin. And so God's solution is an innocent substitute. Obviously, that's a picture of what Jesus did for us. We were guilty. Jesus, our innocent substitute, He didn't do anything wrong, but he died in our place on the cross. And so in that, the blood is avenged. The way they would do it is they would measure and see which city was closest to this slain man in the field. So it's in the wilderness, somewhere in the forest. So you had cities that were broken down in the promised land. And if it was closest to whatever city, they would bring it there. They would get the elders of that city united And then they would say, okay, any of you guys know anything about this? No, 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 no. Okay, the way you're going to show that you're innocent is you're going to take water over the broken neck of this animal that was innocent and you're going to wash your hands over this animal indicating that you're innocent of this sin. And that way you're going to remove the guilt from the nation of Israel, okay? So that was God's... um, picture for an unsolved murder okay so it's a picture of of what what we remember when jesus was being 
wrongly accused, right? Do you guys remember what Pilate did? Three times he pleaded with the Jewish religion, the leaders. And he said, over and over, I find no guilt with this man. And over and over, he, they would say, we don't care. And so even on a last kind of ditch effort, he's like, okay, I know what I'll do. His wife comes to him and says, Pilate, have nothing to do with this innocent man. I had a dream with him last night. You are to have nothing to do with this innocent man, speaking and referring to Jesus. And so Pilate said, I know what I'll do. Every, every um, year we let one of the guilty guys go free so that you know, we'll be good and good standing with the nation of Israel. So we've got this guy, Barabbas. Nobody's going to pick this guy. He's a, he's a scoundrel. I mean, this guy's an insurrectionist. He's horrible human being. So I'll kind of put Barabbas up with Jesus. Surely they're going to ask for Jesus. What did he do? He just kind of claimed that he was the king of the Jews. No big deal, right? So he's like, all right, Jesus Barabbas. His name was Jesus. Jesus Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth. And they're yelling out, crucify him we want barabbas let me read you out of matthew's gospel playing on that in chapter 27 verses 24 through 26 the bible says when pilate saw that he could not prevail at all but rather that a tumult was rising he took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying i am innocent of the blood of this just person you see to it and all the people answered and said his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged, scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So here's my question. Did Barabbas do everything that he could in his power to be free of the guilt of this man? Or could he have done more? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm sorry, Jesus. Did Pilate, not Barabbas, did Pilate do everything that he could have done or could he have done more to be he, because he says it here, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Did he do everything that he could within his power to be innocent of this just person? Bridget, you say no. Why? Mm-hmm. Wasn't That's a malt. Back then, um, there was already like conflict with um, another governor or something like that. Mm-hmm. His father-in-law and his Herod. Herod. So I think he was just trying to make them happy versus doing the right thing. Okay. So what would the right thing have been? Okay. Anybody else? Chuck, Chuck what were you saying? Uh, I agree with Bridget. I mean, he could have. He was. I mean, he was the governor. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. Right. But he chose not to. Yeah. And also, we got to understand that God had this all planned out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what was going to happen. Okay. But you know. Fear of man. man. Hillary? Yeah, I don't really think that there's anything that he could have done to dissuade them. I mean, he tried multiple times, and like you said, that's... It needed to happen. <laughs> you know? Planned. Yeah. Brian? The Romans had authority, yeah. mm-hmm. so he had authority. The yeah. Jews had no say in it, so I think he could have done more. Okay. But, but in, <coughs> like Bridget said, 
He, I think he also, though, was afraid that they were going to flat out riot. Well, he had one strike left before they were going to oust him. So there was a pol- political thing going on at the time. Okay? I will say this. This is politics at its best. And so as Christians, we need to be very careful when we elevate politics above truth and doing what's right. Politics exists anywhere you go. Politics exists in the home. Politics exists at work. Politics exists, um, obviously, in the country, in the state. So politics are alive and well. And, and when I say politics, I don't mean just national politics, who you're going to vote for the president. I mean political systems where power plays are enforced. I believe that Pilate could have done more, but I believe that he would have done it at the expense of his career. I believe that he could have walked away and says, no way, not on my watch. I know definitively that you guys are envious of him. He says it in um, John's gospel. They, they handed him over for envy, Pilate says in that gospel. And so he knew that they were just envious of Jesus and the crowds that had started following after Jesus. And so he says, because of that, um, I know that, it's that that's their motive. He could have said, no, no, not on my watch. I don't care if I'm kicked out of politics. I don't care if I make another dime in this city. I'm going to stand on what's right. And I say that for application for us. We need to be very careful because politics are alive and well. And to whom are we giving allegiance? To our fears? To what people will think of us? To our popularity? To how much money we're going to make or not make? then what we do every time we do that and we play that political game is we take Jesus off the throne and we place that thing on the throne. Whether it's home politics, work politics, all of those things, okay? So I do believe that we need to be careful with that so that we can say I am innocent of the blood of this just person washing our hands, if you will, of things. We gotta be careful and we gotta pray for wisdom and ask God how can we be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, as the Bible says, and how we can do things that are pleasing to God, okay? But in this case, horrible, horrible. All right, let's go to the next little section in Deuteronomy chapters, verses 10 through 14. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand and you, t- and you take them captive, And you see among the captives a beautiful woman and desire her and would take her for your wife. Then you shall bring her home to your house and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. Uh, She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house and mourn her father and her mother a full month after you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. And it shall be if you have no delight in her then you shall set her free, but you certainly shall not set her, uh, not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. So here's an interesting little law. Remember, if they were going to take the Canaanites and all the ites, remember the Midianites, the Gerasites, all those ites, and they were in the land, it was annihilation. They're going to wipe them out. Why? Because God gave them 400 years to repent. And they never did. They were evil. They were wicked. And they were going to turn the nation of Israel away from God. And so God says, no, 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 no. If they're a community, if there's somebody in the land of Canaan, we're going to wipe those out. 
But on the outskirts, if I expand your territory, then you're only going to take out the fighting men. So in that case, women would be available. Okay? And he's saying if you go into a land now and you find one of these women attractive, you're not going to treat them in the disgusting way that the other nations would do. They would just take them and use them like a piece of meat, if you will, and then just cast them to the side. And he's like, no, 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 no. You guys aren't going to do that. And so he sets guidelines. I find it interesting. Let me read you some notes that I have. And you see among the captives a beautiful woman and desire her, it says in that section, right? In the ancient world, it is not uncommon for a man to take a wife from among the captives, especially if she was a beautiful, a beautiful woman. Yet obviously this was open to great abuse. So God gives specific guidelines to govern this practice in Israel. So notice the first thing he said. He said, shave her head and trim her nails. First, the captive woman had to be purified and humbled. This denoted a complete break with her past and the willingness to start anew, humbly as a child. I find it interesting, God is giving the whole world this opportunity to be able to surrender and submit unto him in this time. Remember, he has one nation on the earth that he is the God of that nation, Israel, but God wasn't exclusive. Anybody who wanted to join, um, who was the woman? Rahab the harlot. She was, a, I think, a Midianite, one of the enemies of God. But she came to faith in God. Okay? And so throughout the Old Testament, you see all kinds of people like that. God would never turn away anybody who wanted to worship and serve him, the true and living God. And so as you look at these instructions, so the first one, shave her head. Again, a sign of purification and humility. The second thing, put off her cl- the clothes of her captivity and remain in your house. Second, the captive woman had to show a change of allegiance. This showed that the captive woman no longer regarded her former nation and her former family. Now she is a citizen of the nation of Israel. So she had to identify with the nation of Israel. And then the last thing, mourn her father and mother a full month. Third, the captive woman had to mourn her past associations. This would be a time when she could resolve issues in her heart regarding her family. And when her husband-to-be could live with her a month without intimate relations so he could see if he really wanted to take this woman as a wife and to make sure he was not making a decision based only on physical appearance or attractiveness. And so he was even giving the men of the nation of Israel an opportunity to say, Hey, bro, she's, she's, she's real pretty, but uh, whoo, she's, yeah, you probably don't want to marry because you would see the character in that 30 days. And then he goes on, he says, you certainly shall not sell her for money. You shall treat her, uh, not treat her brutally. After the month of mourning, the potential husband was free to marry the captive woman, yet he did not have to. But if he decided not to, he had to set her free with dignity. And this was a remarkable protection of the rights of captive women. Nowhere in antiquity was this done. And so you see God intervening with his children and saying, we're gonna be a nation that is different from every other nation in the world because you guys are my representatives. You're representing, you are the light of the world. You're representing my light to the world. And so I I, I think that's just neat. Um, For us, I think it's important too that we, when we become Christians, that we identify with Christ, that we realize that our citizenship is in heaven now and that we are kids of the kingdom. And kids of the kingdom, you hear that a lot sometimes, meaning that we deserve to be rich and never sick and all of this stuff. That's not what that means. 
When, it mean, when we say that we're kids of the kingdom, it means God's our, our savior. God's our God. He's the ruler of our life. He's our Lord. And so we should conduct ourselves very differently from the world. Okay. Any questions on that section? All right, here's a tough little section. We'll have uh, Brian explain this one because I don't know what to... Question, Joey, on when they captive, if, 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 if she was already married before... Her husband's dead okay. because they killed him when they took the city because all the fighting men of the outskirt cities would have to be killed. So basically, she's a widow now if she was married. Um, firstborn inheritance rights. If a man has two wives... Uh-oh. Two wives... One love and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved. And if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. And so God established the right of the firstborn. He would get a double portion of the blessing. And if you had two wives and you had their first wife uh, gave you children and they're like, oh, I don't really like them. Oh, but I like the ones of my second wife. No, 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 no. You couldn't change it, okay? So here's, you know, that's just, what God established. We'll just leave that as it is. But here's my question. Let's see, where's that? If a man has two wives, here's the question. What's wrong with this picture? How do you explain that the Bible is speaking about having two wives without stating that it's wrong? How do you explain that to me? So it says right here, if a man has two wives, one loved, the other unloved, and then it goes on to explain the law. So it's telling us if a man has two wives, but yet it's not telling us having two wives is wrong. How do you explain that? That the Bible doesn't tell us that that's wrong right here. Maybe before he became knowing God or... Oh, no, this is to the nation of Israel. This is the God's children. He's speaking when they go into the promised land. We're setting up laws that you guys are going to live by. Here's before it even happens. How can a man actually have... Well, once he divorces... No. If a man has two wives... He did for the kings. Remember, he said uh, when a king, when you guys, you know, finally get a king, he's not to do certain things. One of them, don't multiply wives, don't multiply, I think, gold, and don't multiply horses. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he, he addressed that to the kings. There's too much complication when you try to. I agree. One's enough, huh, Jake? Exactly. Woo! <laughs> he used to be a Mormon. More than one wife. But wouldn't the Mormons who practice polygamy take this from the Bible and say, look, saying it right there. If he has two wives, we know Abraham had Hagar and Sarah. We know David had multiple wives, Bathsheba, Mi- Michael, Bathsheba, right? The original question is, what's wrong with this picture? How do you explain 
that the Bible is speaking about having two wives without stating that it's wrong. How did the term wives in one of the passages from the Bible have given uh, allowed for the woman, the, I don't understand that part for God, but from Sarah's story, is that where the, I don't, I don't remember the passage, but... Not sure. Tony? So you're saying why is wrong for a man to have two wives? How do you explain that the Bible's telling us if a man has two wives without telling us that it's wrong to have two wives? It's just addressing the fact that if a man has two wives. I kind of, I don't know if this is probably really off. I picture like when uh, Jesus said you can't serve two masters, right? You can't serve the enemy and you can't serve him. And like if you have two wives, like kind of in that same situation because you have to like, when Brian taught, when it's no trick question. When Brian taught through Exodus, he answered this question. I thought you guys were paying attention when Brian taught Exodus. Probably three years ago, but I thought I thought you guys I thought you guys were paying attention. God is addressing what is taking place in that culture. He's not approving it. He's not saying that it's okay. The Bible clearly states that you're not to multiply wives, that you're not to have more than one wife. The fact that they did it, they were following the culture and what the culture was doing. And so it's like slavery. God is not condoning anywhere in the Bible slavery. And that's what Brian addressed when he was going through Exodus. God is not condoning slavery. In fact, what God did with slavery was he had the nation of Israel rise above the brutality that those slaves were being treated and he says, you guys are going to do this. I'm not saying to have slaves, but this is how you'll treat your slaves. And so in the same way, God is not condoning polygamy or more than one wife. If you have more than one wife, you really only have one and you're committing adultery with all of those other wives. So you're in a, in a habitual, adulterous relationship. You don't have two or five or 20 wives. So those guys in Utah in the name of being a prophet of God who claim to have all of these multiple wives. You have one wife in the sight of God, the first one you married. All of those other girls, women, are adulterous relationships. And that's sin. That's horrible. So if somebody were to ask us this question, how do you explain that the Bible is speaking about having two wives without saying that, stating that it's wrong? God all over tells us it's wrong. Just because he doesn't say it right here doesn't give it approval. He's addressing his nation and he's saying, when you do this, make sure that you take care of the firstborn son because you will have problems. There's not one person in the Bible that had more than one wife that didn't have problems because directly to that issue, David had horrible problems. Abraham had horrible problems. On and on and on. Solomon, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Really? That's insane. He was one of the richest men in the world at that time. Correct. For a person to, to understand that when God gives you a wife that gives you kids, 
if the wife doesn't give you kids and you have to have kids, which is that's what you have to do, I guess. That's what they do. They marry the girls, give the kids. Insane. Let's go on. She got it. So, so it's not fair, but it's always been a patriarchal ruling, and it's part of the curse, I believe. So, a patriarchal ruling means men have always dominated every culture. Every culture. Why? It's part of the curse. Because when God made man and woman, he gave them both dominion over the earth and the, the animals, the animal kingdom. So in the curse, because Eve did what she did, the serpent did what he did, Adam did what he did, there's this curse on the earth, and it won't be like that in heaven. Woohoo! Okay, now let's apply this, though. Hold on. Go ahead, Jake. Well, but when she was talking about how about the men, if they want to go from woman to woman, it's not that. It's just the thing is that it also says that if a man is married to a wife and she doesn't bear children, and if she dies and she had no children with you, then you could marry somebody else and have children with that. Right. That's what I was trying to say. Hold on, now we're done. Our application on this, or, or what we want to get from this for us is, they did things in their society, and their culture, the, the children of God that were sinful and outside of the culture, I guarantee you that there's things that we do because of the culture that we live in that sometimes we don't even pay attention to. Just because the culture is doing that or says that it's okay. So as Christians, be careful when we're pointing and shaking our finger at people because we need to take an, a personal account. And we need to say, God, give me wisdom. Show me. Are there things that I do that don't please you, that don't honor you, that you're not okay with? Just because our culture says it's okay, and well, every, well, everyone steals music from the internet. I mean, come on, yeah, right? Well, it's either stealing or it's not. Well, everyone takes a movie or every, you know, whatever, whatever we say. When we were kids, we went to the drive-in. How did we do it? Six of us in the trunk and two in the car. No, you don't. You know, well, everyone does that. I mean, why? Because you're cheap and you don't want to pay. Bottom line, it comes down to money. So is, is God? You know, is money your God or is God your God? So again. Things, just because everyone does it and, and we're looking at things that the culture says is okay, it's tax season. Hopefully, we're legit with our taxes. And we're not getting that, oh, dude, you got to go to this guy because, man, he somehow, he, man, he will hook you up. My, that happened to us one year. I was working at LA Unified School District. And we went to this guy. And he put that we owned a business and all this stuff. And I was like, rocks. We don't own a business. We can't be, we can't be all these write-offs. So basically, if you make this much, now it's all tax write-offs. So really, you only made this much. So they tax you on this little, so you get more money back. Like rocks. We, 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 don't, we don't own the business. You know, there's the problem. I mean, I like the fact that he said, you're going to get X amount of thousands back. Yeah, that looks good, right? Woo, I could do so much good for Jesus with all these thousands. No. We've got to honor God in the things and the decisions that we make because we can't outgive God. He's the one that gives us our money to begin with. He's the one that blesses us with those things. Again, so we need to be careful just because people do it in the culture as Christians. They were doing things, multiplying wives. Why? Because the culture was multiplying wives. 
So we need to be careful with it. I'm just throwing that out there because trust me, there's things that we do God's not pleased with. And it's not like God's going to wipe us out or smoke us dead. But it's like, wow, I thought if you trusted me, I can bless you with so much more. But you, you only want that much then? Hmm, okay. I got blessings that you can't even speak of. How about health? How about peace? How about joy? How about being right with people? All of those things, those things that we don't even, we take for granted sometimes. So very important that we be careful of that. Verses 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and, mo- and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of, the, of his city, to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the el- elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, when you hear this, you almost think, oh my gosh, you're gonna take a three-year-old and stone that little kid. All three-year-olds are rebellious and, you know, just getting crazy. No, no, no. These were kids that were advanced in age, okay? Let me read you some notes that I found. Um, a stubborn and a rebellious son. This does not mean a small child or even a young teen, but a son past the age of accountability who sets himself in determined rebellion against his father and mother. You'll notice that it said, who when they have chastened him will not heed them. The parents have tried to do their job. They've, they've discipled him. That word um, discipline comes from the word disciple. Discipline is not just you're beating your kids. Discipline is teaching your kids, discipling, okay? So we need to see that they tried. They did the best that they could. You bring him out to the elders of the city. Such a stubborn and rebellious son was to be put on trial before the elders of the city. If they determined he to be, him to be chronically rebellious, then the son was to be stoned to death. And so what you're doing is you're taking it out of the parents' hands. This kid needs to be stoned. Okay, Let's look into it. Let's do a little investigation. So maybe there's witnesses. Maybe there's things that he done specifically. Okay? Then you would do it. Um, perhaps just the presence of this law was deterrent enough because we never have a scriptural example of a son being stoned to death because he was a stubborn and rebellious son. And then number two, uh, yet the Jews say this law was never put into practice and therefore it might be made for terror and prevention and to render the authority of parents more sacred and powerful. Just by having the law in the books, maybe that was enough for you to say, um, are we going to we gonna have to go to the elders? Ooh, okay, yeah, that's serious stuff. Dang, they're going to kill me, you know? So maybe that's how it worked, okay? Um, discipline is lost today. Our last section, if a man has committed sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged on it, uh, uh, who is hanged is accursed of God. Interesting little tiny section. Um, there's a reference in the book of Galatians to Jesus 
and this exact verse is quoted. So Jesus was basically accursed of God because he was hung on the cross. Because he was cursed, he took our curse. Because we're the ones that were deserving to be hung. We're the ones that deserve death. We're the ones that made the mistake. Jesus never sinned. So let me read you those verses. It's found in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So if you look at sin when it entered into the world in Genesis 3, part of the curse was to the ground. And what would the curse of the ground be when he gave Adam's curse? Anybody remember? You will till the ground, and what will it produce? Thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. Find it interesting that Jesus, in a mock trial, they would form a crown made out of thorns. Buying back, redeeming work and the curse. Jesus would take the curse, but he would also take the elements of the curse in Genesis chapter 3 and carry them on the cross as well. And so for us, yeah, the earth does produce weeds and work is hard. And by the sweat of our brow, we'll, we'll eke out a living, as the Bible says. But you know what? Jesus redeemed work. And we can find joy in our work if we do it as unto the Lord. And so you just look at that and how Jesus did more than just redeem us, but he took that curse upon himself. The only innocent one in the world carried it upon himself to redeem us from the curse. We who should have been cursed. Isn't that awesome? Questions, comments, concerns? That's yeah. Go ahead. No. It reminds me of the scripture, I don't know where it is, but it says, uh, honor your father and mother, and in doing so, you will have long life. And they, it was for the kids, tell them to honor their father and mother, because otherwise you'd be taken to the... <laughs> the elders and be stoned, you know. But so it's like, uh, uh, and, and doing so, you can have a long life. Otherwise, your life's going to be cut I think one of the biggest things that that one, uh, that rebellious son law, um, to me, shows, is God was more intent on a nation than He was in the individual. Today, we elevate the individual and look at where our country is. Instead of respecting your elders. Instead of not lying, instead of not cheating. Like Roxanne was telling about people who have college degrees. And he's like, so many of them cheat to get it. Like they have somebody else doing their work. Or, and I gave her stories of people that I knew, how they got their degree. Some teachers that I used to teach with. And I'd be like, yeah, that's how so-and-so got their degree. And that's, you know, had kids in his own classroom finishing his degrees for his master's program. And you're like, yeah, that's true. 
the individual has been elevated where the, the community, the nation of Israel, why? Because a Messiah was coming through that line and it was more important that the nation stay intact. Our nation, it's, it's been erased. And so it's now the individual rights have been elevated above the nation and what's right for the nation. There's a guy just in the news that um, he's, he had one life term and he's in prison right now. And he killed two ladies, raped them and killed them. And he had an ability to have a plea bargain deal. So they gave him three consecutive life terms because he, he took this plea bargain because he raped and killed these two women. And he took the plea bargain because he could have gotten the death penalty. The law clearly says, get that evil out of you. We've winked at crime and sin and look at the condition of our country. People are abused over and over and over and over. And it's a shame. And we house them. It cost us over $100,000 to put a prisoner, a year, to put a prisoner in prison. It would cost $30,000 for a darn good college education. So it's just weird. Our country is just so like lost in its values. And I look at all of this and I think, wow, if we obeyed God, we'd be doing way better. I think that they're so afraid that, well, you know, okay, maybe this guy was caught dead to right, but maybe, maybe he really isn't really guilty, you know? And so that's the reason why they're... they're No, they know he's guilty because they have the, uh, what is it, the blood? What is it, the DNA? Um, the reason they don't do that, they give them the plea, is because going to court is thousands of dollars. Maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, all that. Yeah. So this guy's got like four life terms. What? And he's already in prison for one life term. So to me, it's just, it's a farce and it's a shame. That guy should have been wiped out. That guy should have been killed. Death penalty. Done. But... All kinds of stuff. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We know that we are going to a place that uh, righteousness reigns because you will be there, Lord. And so we look forward to heaven. Until then, Lord, we live in this corrupt world. And I pray that, Lord, we would be hopeful to know that we can share your love with people and that they can come out of the darkness into the marvelous light that you provide. Lord, their destination can be changed from hell to heaven. And so I pray, Father, that we would be diligent to do that. So thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the things that we can learn. And we just pray you continue to teach us and grow us up in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.